0: Hello, Brett here. Before we get to today's show, got a quick favor to ask of you. If you've been enjoying the Art of Manliness podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps us out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you so much. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member you would think would get something out of it. Word of mouth is the primary way the art of manliness grows and spreads. So please share, text a friend, send an email, do whatever, however you communicate. Tell them to check out a particular episode if you think they'd get something out of it. Thank you for your continued support. And now on to the show. <laughs> Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, I am really excited about today's show. Our guest today has written a book that's been one of the most influential books I've read in recent years. We've written a post about it on the blog and also did a video on our YouTube channel inspired by this book. Our guest is Charles Duhigg. He's the author of The Power of Habit, Why We Do What We Do in Life and Business, and it's basically a a summation Of all the research that's been going on in recent years about the science of habit formation, what goes on in our brain whenever we form a habit. And Charles Duhigg has basically laid out this process that we go through in order to form a habit. It's called the habit loop. And he talks about how you can use the habit loop and hack it to transform bad habits into good habits and how to make new habits. Uh, So, in today's show, that's what we're gonna talk about. We're gonna talk about how to use the habit loop to transform your life for the better, to get rid of bad habits and make good habits. Uh, So I think you're going to get a lot of out of this episode, so stay tuned. Charles Duhigg, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Okay, so your book is The Power of Habit. You're a reporter for the New York Times. How did you get started researching habits? I think you mentioned there was an incident in Iraq when you were over there doing a story that kind of peaked it. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That was kind of my first introduction to the science of habit formation. I was a reporter in Iraq, and I went down to a city named Kufa, which is about an hour south of Baghdad, talked to an army major down there. And and this major had been given this assignment of stopping riots from happening in the city. Now, this is in 2003, 2004, and if you'll remember, this is when the U.S. had sort of fully moved into Iraq, and riots were a real problem. They were killing dozens, sometimes hundreds of people a week. And and so, stopping. no one really understood how to stop the riots. And so, this army major met with the mayor of Kufa, and he had this whole laundry list of things that he was asking for to stop the gun runners and stop the suicide bombers. And the mayor basically said, I, I can't do any of that. Like, those are all great ideas, but I, I don't know how. And then the, the major had this one other request, which was, can you take all the food vendors out of the plazas? And the mayor said, sure, this, this one I can do. And so a couple of weeks later, there's a, a, a crowd developing around the Grand Mosque of Kufa which is a, a very important site in Shia Islam. And one of the things that they never tell you on the news when you're watching riot footage is that it actually takes hours and hours for a riot to develop. What usually happens, and we know this from drone footage that from that's shot overhead, is that a group of sort of troublemakers will show up someplace, like a plaza, and they'll attract some spectators. And those spectators will get larger and larger over time. And eventually the crowd will reach this kind of critical size where it's big enough for a riot to occur and someone will pick up a bottle and throw it against a wall or something like that and a riot will start and all these people who previously were spectators will sort of get drawn into it. But the key is that it has to have this critical size. So a couple of weeks after the major asked the Kufa to to remove the food vendors a crowd is developing around the Grand Mosque of Kufa and the local Iraqi cops start to get worried and they radio the base and they say, you know, please be on standby. We think a a riot's going to break out. And, and the major and his troops say, okay. And, and they start watching the drone footage. And it's flying overhead. And, and at about 5 o'clock, 5.30, 5.45, which is actually like the only nice time of day in Iraq, the crowd has gotten large enough that it's kind of at that critical riot size. And it looks like things are about to get really bad. And all of a sudden, and you sort of notice this from the footage from the drones, the folks at the periphery of the crowd, because it's you know, 5.30, it's like dinner time, they start looking around for these kebab sellers that normally filled up the, the, the plaza around the Grand Mosque of Kufa. But the kebab sellers, of course, had been removed by the mayor at the major's request. And so, so some of these folks, they sort of wander away. And, and you can actually follow them on the footage. And they go home, assumably, to have dinner. And sort of the next ring of people, of spectators on the plaza, they're watching these people leave. And some of them apparently think, oh, there must be a better riot going on someplace else. And so they start following these people who have wandered away. And the next ring of people do the same thing. And over about 45 minutes, the entire plaza clears out, except for these troublemakers. And the troublemakers don't have an audience anymore. And so they go home, too. In the nine months that the major had been there, there hadn't been one riot. And this is like an all-time record for this area. So I went and I talked to the major and I asked him, How did you know that removing the food vendors would have this this impact on stopping the riots? And he said, Well he wasn't really certain that it was going to work, but he sort of had this theory. And the, the reason why is because he was this guy from Georgia. He, when he was in high school, he was trying to decide whether to go into the military or whether to join his brother, who had become this very successful methamphetamine entrepreneur in <laughs> rural Georgia. And, and he decided to, to enter the military cause, only because his brother had actually got arrested and sent to jail like two weeks before his graduation. And he said that when he got into the military, he quickly realized that it's like this giant habit-changing machine, right? The military has spent millions and millions of dollars understanding habits so that they can train you, for instance, you know, your natural instinct when someone's shooting at you is to run away, but they want to give you this habit to shoot back. Or when you're in a war zone now, you can email with your spouse. And so if they don't teach you good communication habits, you get into these fights over email and you're distracted when you're on patrol. And so the military has spent a lot of time thinking about habits, and they transmitted this to the major himself. And he said that when he took command in Kufa, in that he had been trained in such a way that he sort of saw these crowds not as you know, thousands of individuals who could become violent, but as a, a group of habits, and that he knew that, that changing some of the cues in their environment could disrupt the patterns that would otherwise exert themselves. And that's exactly what happened. And so when I got back to the U.S., I thought this was really interesting, and I started looking into it more and more, and from that, um, collecting research on the science of habit formation.
0: It's interesting. So yeah, your whole book delves into this research about, you know, it goes into neuroscience and other, you know, cognitive science about habit formation, but I mean, what is, it seems we've been studying habits since William James, right? That was like over 100 years ago. But what's changed in the past 20, 10 years that allows us to understand habits more Fully, like what, you know, the, the science that you've displayed in your book?
1: Well, in, in particular, in the last decade, there's just been these huge insights into and, and huge new tools for understanding the, the neurology of habit formation. The basic insight is that every habit has these three components. There's a cue, which is like a trigger for an automatic behavior to start, and then a routine, which is the behavior itself, and then finally a reward. And we've known that since Pavlov, right? That yeah. like, cues and rewards shape how we automatically behave. But what's different is that we didn't really understand how powerfully cues and rewards functioned on a neurological level. That simply introducing cues and rewards or fiddling with cues and rewards in the environment can actually change how people behave without them realizing anything is going on. We've also learned just how many of our behaviors actually are habits. There was a a woman named Wendy Wood at Duke University who did a study where she followed hundreds of people around. And she she calculated that about 40 to 45% of what we do every day isn't really a decision. It's a habit. And once you begin to understand how these habits function on a neurological level and how many of them surround us, you get this new appreciation for how powerfully you can change behaviors with these subtle shifts in the cues and rewards within a person's environment.
0: Hmm. And what exactly happens to our brain when we form a habit? Because... I guess the, the research has shown or the, I guess they've done MRIs. Is that what they
1: use? Um, F- they, they use a lot of different things. Yeah. They use MRIs, fMRIs. They, they even just use like a, a sort of measurements of electrical activity.
0: So yeah, what happens? I mean, when you're starting that habit formation, like what's going on with the brain? I mean, what do they see going on in the brain when we're trying to form a habit?
1: Well, so two things happen. The first of which is that you you tend to develop a neural pathway that associates a behavior with a specific cue and a reward, right? And so that's this is kind of how our brain works. Our brain creates pathways that electrical charges travel down so as to motivate certain behaviors. And once those pathways get established, it's pretty uncommon for them to ever disappear. The other thing that we know is that when you're in the grip of a habit, once a habit is established, your brain essentially thinks less when it's in the grip of that habit, right? A habit is essentially an energy-saving mechanism for your brain to be able to say, okay, look, when I see X, I'm going to do Y, and I'm going to get reward Z, so I don't have to think about it anymore. I can make it automatic, and that's really, really powerful because it means that it conserves our mental energy for other tasks, like being able to Think about the memo we have due when we're driving to work because the drive has become a habit, or being able to talk to our friends when we walk into the cafeteria because choosing something to eat has become a habit. So this ability to conserve mental energy is really, really useful from an evolutionary perspective. But because these neural pathways tend to be very long-lasting, that essentially, once they're in place, they never really disappear, it also means that once you develop a habit, it really never goes away. You can change it and you can try and ignore it. But once that pathway is there, you have to actively do something to discourage the behavior from emerging.
0: Hmm. Okay, so let's get into what you call the habit loop, right? So you kind of mentioned it earlier. So it's the cue, routine, reward. And that's what you tinker with in order to change habits or to form a new habit, correct?
1: That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, you, you need to recognize those three parts of the habit loop in order to be able to diagnose and then manipulate that behavior.
0: Okay, and so what, what's the thing that you, should you tinker with? Is it the cue that you tinker with? Is it the reward? What is it you tinker with in order to find out what's causing you, you to do something? Or
1: Sure, you can tinker with anything, but what studies seem to indicate is that because those habits are so long-lasting, it's very, very, very hard to change the cue and the reward. Mm. Now, this isn't impossible, right? For instance, when people are trying to quit smoking, they tend to be much more successful if they quit smoking when they're on vacation, right? And that makes sense because you're, you're around different types of cues, you're not, being kind, you're not in the same patterns that you have on a day-to-day basis. The problem is that eventually you go home, right? And you can't really change the cues that surround you very easily without creating sort of some massive upheaval throughout your life. And so what most psychologists and psychiatrists and neurologists who study this say is that you should adhere to what's known as the golden rule of habit change, which says, don't try and change the cue and the reward. Instead, recognize what they are and try and find a new behavior. Since the behavior is what you're actually worried about or the thing you actually want to change, try and find a new behavior that seems to correspond to an old cue and deliver a reward that's similar to that old reward. So smoking is a great example of this because... For most people, smoking is actually a habit dysfunction. We think of it as an addiction, right? And and nicotine is addicting, but it's not hugely addicting. Medical studies show that about 100 hours after your last cigarette, once the nicotine is out of your blood system, you're no longer physically addicted to cigarettes. Hmm. And yet we all know people who, you know, two weeks or two months or two decades after giving up cigarettes, they still crave uh, smoke with their morning coffee. If you're still feeling that like two decades after you give up cigarettes, That's not because of a physical addiction. That's a habit dysfunction. But because habits sort of exist in the same parts of our brain as addictions, they feel somewhat indistinguishable to us. And so now when they talk to people about curbing smoking, what they don't say is they don't say extinguish the behavior. They don't say just go cold turkey and like try and willpower your way through it. Because that will work for a little while. But once your willpower is kind of tapped out, once you've had a rough day, If you're around those same cues, you're going to start craving that reward. And the reward of nicotine is that it gives you this boost of energy and mental clarity. It actually makes you think faster and easier. And so what they say is, don't try and avoid or extinguish those cues and rewards. Instead, find a new behavior that's very similar. When you you are craving a cigarette, instead...
0: Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know fast-growing trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Criteria that I was looking for turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So, if you want to try fast growing trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code manliness at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code manliness at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code manliness, offers valid for a limited time, terms and conditions may apply. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire.
1: To have a double espresso, right? Because the same queue is going to, you're going to take advantage of the same cue and, and shotgunning all of that caffeine is going to give you a physical reward very akin to what nicotine, nicotine feels like. So instead of trying to extinguish the habit, instead recognize the cues and the rewards and try and find a new behavior, a new routine that seems to mimic those old cues and those old rewards.
0: Hmm. Also by Flint and Tinder, exclusively at Huckberry's. Fall's almost here. It's time to bust out those classic fall staples. Denim, Henleys, button-down Oxfords, hoodies, and you can find all this stuff at Huckberry.com with their Flint and Tinder line. Flint and Tinder, my whole wardrobe is pretty much Flint and Tinder at this point. I've got Henleys, I've got T's, I've got buttoned out Oxfords from them. I got my cool trucker jacket that I'm ready to bust out when it starts cooling off a bit. All of it's made in the USA. It's going to last you a lifetime. Plus they got their 10-year hoodie, my favorite hoodie. I've had it for I think five years. So I'm going like halfway through the 10-year hoodie guarantee. Check it out. Go to Huckberry.com Check out the Flynn Tinder link. It's very prominent there. Use code ART15 at checkout to get 15% off your first purchase from Huckberry. So, huckberry.com, ART15 for your 15% off your first purchase and check out the Flynn Tinder line. You won't regret it. And now back to the show. So, I guess what you're trying to do is you're trying to override that formation, in your brain, the neural pathways. I mean, so will the the desire to smoke a cigarette still kind of be there and you just sort of have to train your brain to be like, no, espresso is what you're going to do now.
1: What will happen over time is that your brain will begin to crave the espresso instead of the the cigarette. And the reason why is because our brain expects a reward. Once our brain expects a reward, it, it becomes almost neurochemically very similar to depression when it doesn't get it. If you can displace the expectation of that reward to a different substance, caffeine instead of nicotine then your brain will sort of just purr happily along.
0: <laughs> okay, so so changing a bad habit is just a matter of changing the routine. Don't mess with the cue or the reward. Just change the routine. Is that correct?
1: But recognize
0: the cue and the okay. routine.
1: Right? Like, like th- th- all of this is incumbent upon being able to diagnose exactly what's going on. And and it can be really hard to diagnose cues. The cues are somewhat, usually pretty easy to diagnose. Rewards can be much, much harder to diagnose. And unless you know exactly what that reward really is it's very hard to find a new behavior that provides it.
0: Yeah, I can see that being like with cigarettes. It could be just putting something in your mouth or having something in your hand or talking with people. I know a lot of people talk.
1: Exactly. The social experience of smoking, the fact that it breaks up your day and gives you kind of a structure to being able to sort of take a break from work. You know, and it's probably different for different people. Nail biting is a good example. There's always been a question about why the nail biting habit exists because it doesn't seem to serve any particular function what researchers eventually figured out is that people tend to bite their nails because they're anxious or they're bored. And when you bite your nails, you feel this small burst of pain from the actual biting activity. And that pain, it can sort of neurologically for microseconds, overwhelm the tension of boredom or the tension of anxiety. And so as a result, the pain is essentially kind of a, a, a reward. Hmm. But we're not programmed to think of pain as a reward. And so it took a long time to realize that and until people did it was very hard to treat nail biting
0: interesting okay so we figure out how to change bad behavior bad habits i guess creating new habits is just a matter of taking the, the habit loop right and just setting up like the routine you want you know creating a cue for yourself and then oh. giving yourself reward
1: is that would that be it that's exactly right okay. that's exactly right and the reward is the really important part there right so so think about how most people try and start a running habit in the morning right they they want to go exercising. So they wake up um, one morning and they put on their shoes and they go for a run. And and then they get home from their run and they're a little bit late, you know, for work because they took time to go running. And so they, like, rush through their shower and they're kind of anxious about getting to work, so they rush to work. Essentially what they're doing is they're kind of punishing themselves, or at least they're punishing, they're, they're punishing their brain for exercising. Their brain learns to say, whenever I go ex- running in the morning, I feel anxious afterwards. And that's, like the, that's a negative reinforcement for habits. On the other hand, studies have shown that when people try and start exercising in the morning, if they do something like choose an obvious cue, like put their running shoes next to their bed or tell their friend that they'll meet them at you know, 7 a.m. You know, down by the running path, and then when they're done, if they give themselves a small piece of chocolate or let themselves take an extra long shower or drink a smoothie, if they deliberately reward themselves, they're much more likely to develop a running habit. But the key is you have, to, you, have to comp- you have to find a reward that you genuinely enjoy, and then you have to allow yourself to enjoy it in order for your brain to start making those associations.
0: Hmm. I'm curious, have they done studies with, with habit formation like by randomizing whether you get a reward or not? Because i read studies where when you, you don't get the reward all the time, you're more prone to like do that thing so you get the re- like I'm, Email is a perfect example of that, right? Like You don't ever know if you're going to get an email, right? Like an awesome email. So you keep checking on that off chance, you're going to get
1: that email that's going to change your life. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, so so what what, what, what we do know a lot is about expected and intermittent rewards, right? In order to develop a habit, a habit is based around stability, right? Your brain has to begin to anticipate certain things in order to, to form associations. And so the reward has to be consistent initially for that habit to stick. Now, the question then becomes, so what transcends sort of habit to addiction? What transcends kind of a patterned behavior to something you begin craving? And one of the things that can enhance craving is when there's intermittent rewards. So and that's exactly what you're talking about is is when there's an expected reward, our brain, t- our brain tends to discount it a little bit. When there's an unexpected big reward, it feels much, much more rewarding to us. So if you want to make something into a habit, what you should do is you should dribble among the expected rewards, unexpected rewards, mm. right? This is how, how slot machines work. Yeah. You know if you play a slot machine that you're on average going to win probably one out of every three to five pulls, right? It's closer to five. But like if you went 12 pulls without winning, you'd walk away from the machine. So they set it up so that you're going to win on average every five pulls. But then ever so often, you win like three in a row right? Mm-hmm. Unexpectedly. That's what makes that activity more than a habit. It makes it into sort of a craving to continue playing. Gotcha.
0: Okay. So I mean, how could you do that? I mean, would that, is that, something, would that be something you'd want to do? I mean, it would, that, you...
1: it, would be, it would be hard to engineer that in your own life, okay. right? Like if, you, if you're talking about, you know, customers or something like that, or your kids, it's easier to do that. But the thing is that if you're doing it within your own life, Intermittent rewards are very unusual within your own life because you're giving yourself the reward. You know that it exists. Now, that being said, basically, our brains understand this science and sometimes take advantage of it. So one of the kind of interesting things that happens when people develop an exercise habit, for instance, is that they will stop relying upon extrinsic rewards like chocolate or a smoothie or a nice long shower. Eventually, your brain learns that you're going to feel endorphins and endocannabinoids, these neurotransmitters that come from physical activity, and that becomes a reward in and of itself that motivates the running, the exercise habit. Hmm. What's interesting is that our, our brain tends to vary sometimes how many of those neurotransmitters are released. Because it, there's a, realization is the wrong word, but, but basically our body understands that to reinforce positive behavior, that the reward should not be completely predictable, so instead of sort of calculating for intermittent rewards, you can oftentimes simply just allow them to happen naturally. Okay. And when you think about it, this happens all the time, right? Like people will be running and they're accustomed to taking a nice long shower. And then one day they decide, in addition to the shower, I'm going to have a smoothie, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm going to take it easy this morning and really let myself enjoy like the, the rewards of running. That's an intermittent reward, you don't really have to plan those out ahead of time. You just have to have a mindset where you allow yourself to enjoy the rewards that you're that surround you. Okay.
0: Well, so we're a podcast geared primarily, primarily towards guys. Um, I'm curious if, in your research, did you find any difference between the way men and women go about forming
1: habits? Not particularly. I mean, in general, it's hard to make broad generalizations, sure. right? Because yeah. um, in general... Women tend to find different types of things inherently more or less rewarding than men. Mm-hmm. So we know that, emotion, that emotional rewards are the most rewarding kinds of rewards. Women tend to find cathartic emotions, have much greater salience. Again, this is a huge generalization, sure, but yeah. in general, women <clears throat> tend to find cathartic emotions, like for instance you know, like crying is a great example of this, right? One of the, one of the hypotheses about why women tend to cry more than men is that women actually find it just much more neurologically rewarding to cry than men do. Hmm. And so there's some interesting differences there that you can get into about like what types of rewards you should give to different people. But the truth of the matter is people know themselves really well. Like if there are plenty of men out there who find crying rewarding and plenty of women who don't find (laughs) crying rewarding. And so the truth of the matter is that if you want to create habits for yourself and you know that you need to positively reinforce, you need to find some rewards, just ask yourself what you genuinely find rewarding and, and you'll know, right? We all know. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. The one section I found really intriguing or just fascinating or interesting because I didn't think of this as an important part of habit formation was this idea that belief plays an important role in habit change. Um, can you talk a little bit about how belief affects habit formation?
1: Yeah, sure. So, so this is one of the things that's kind of interesting, particularly if you're looking at Alcoholics Anonymous. So AA, for instance, is essentially a, a large habit change organization, right? They, they help you identify cues and rewards that alcohol previously provided, and they try and replicate those cues and rewards in a sober environment by giving you a sponsor and replicating the social experience by giving you an opportunity for emotional catharsis, by kind of telling your story and achieving some emotionality away from alcohol. But when researchers have looked at AA, and a lot of researchers were skeptical of AA for a long time because it was created by people who didn't have any scientific background. Yeah. When they looked at it, what they found was that people kept on saying, yeah, 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 that, that makes a lot of sense. Like, it's a great habit, you know, habit transfer organization. But the real reason that it works for me is because I, it tells me to believe in a higher power. This did not make any sense to scientists because belief in a higher power isn't supposed to like, really do anything. right? There's no way to like, test hypotheses around like, whether God exists. Yeah. But what they, what they eventually figured out is that it seemed like for a number of people that getting a chance to practice belief was very, very important. So in AA, a number of the steps are about believing in a higher power. And it seems like what's happening in those AA meetings is that when people go through those steps, they're practicing belief. And eventually, they can transfer that practice, that skill, to believing in themselves. And once they start believing in themselves and their ability to stay sober in stressful situations, it makes it much more likely that they'll actually stay sober in stressful situations. So it seems like there is this kind of interesting prerequisite to behavior change, which is that you have to believe that behavior change is possible you have to believe that you are capable of behavior change. You have to believe that that change can be permanent. And the way that you kind of be- learn to believe that is you practice believing in other things. You build up the belief muscle, and eventually you can apply it to yourself.
0: Yeah, so it sounds like you need to have like that growth mindset, right?
1: Yeah, I, right. I mean, I, I think that that's the thing is that you're, you know, most of our interior capacities, kind of a muscle is a good analogy. Mm-hmm. that we, we develop neurological capacities because we practice them. And, and it's hard to practice belief in a sort of low-stakes setting. But when it happens, when you're believing in a higher power or something like that, you get better at it. Yeah, interesting. It, oh, go ahead. And I apologize. I, I actually have to jump okay. um, to another call. Well, but, we're, um,
0: we're done. Yeah. Um, oh, great. So that was my last question. Oh uh, Well, Charles Duhigg, thank you so much for your time. This is a, a fascinating discussion, and uh, I appreciate your time.
1: No, absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: Our guest today is Charles Duhigg. Charles Duhigg is the author of The Power of Habit, Why We Do What We Do in Life and Business. And you can find that on Amazon.com and at other book retailers. And you can find more about Charles Duhigg and his book at charlesduhigg.com. I highly recommend you go check it out. He's got links to uh, other additional resources and teaching guides about The Power of Habit. So make sure to check it out. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the Art of Manliness podcast, uh, we'd really appreciate it if you go on to iTunes or Stitcher or whatever you use to listen to your podcast and give us a rating. That will help us reach more people, and we just really appreciate it. So until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.